Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. Well, I always, always, always start out my sermon by saying, would you turn your Bibles with me too? But tonight, I didn't even have Addie put the scripture references up on the thing, on the PowerPoint, because I've got about 27 different references. So, would you take out your Bible if you have one, and there's some in the pews, there's some few Bibles in the pews if you you want to follow along. Um, There's hymnals as well as Bibles, so... uh, Hopefully you can find one, and if you need to, grab one from another, another seat if you need to. Um, we're going to start out, if you want to go ahead and turn to the first one, to Matthew chapter 16. So, all right. As I said, tonight we're going to talk about church membership. And so, um, there's a couple of things that I, I need to kind of get out of the way. Like... What is church membership, and is it biblical? I remember having a conversation many years ago with a friend of mine who, who uh, he didn't get the point about church membership. He was like, I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see anything called church membership. But if you look in your Bible, if you do a search, you know, we've got different kind of Bible programs and things like that. You can go online. If you type in church membership, you're not going to find those words together. So the question is, if I care so much about this, if we want to make church membership something that's meaningful here, well, is it biblical? And so that's one of the cases that I want to make tonight to kind of show that this concept is something that the Bible teaches, even though the words may not be there. Kind of like the Trinity. If you look in the Bible for the word Trinity, it doesn't appear. But it teaches that the Son is God that the Father is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. That each one are distinct persons, yet each one is fully God. We don't see that word there. And in the same way, we don't see church membership named that. But I think the concept is there when we look at the texts that relate to this issue. Let's go ahead and and read that first text, Matthew 16. Um... Matthew 16, and we'll begin with verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am, that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey your word. Father, be with me. Give me strength. Give me clarity. Help me to explain the teachings of your word. Help me not to lead people astray. But help me to, to, to stay focused on what the Bible actually teaches about the topic we're talking about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Bible, what we see are basically two different things whenever it talks about the church. We see the universal church. The, the, the universal church would be all believers and who have who have trusted in Christ, who have who all, all of the redeemed of all of the ages who have who have trusted in Christ are a part of the universal church. Um, we see this in a couple of different texts. Jesus said in the passage we just looked at in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I believe that's one of the passages that's talking about the universal church. Jesus is the one who builds the universal church. Now, he also builds each individual local church as well. But here's the next thing he says is, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what? There are churches that have gone out of existence. Individual local churches that have gone out of existence. In fact, a church met in this building for many years. Grace Fellowship Baptist Church met in this building. And they came to a point at which they closed their doors. And they didn't want to see this building surrendered and just turned into a house. And so they contacted Rehoboth Baptist Association and they asked, and Rehoboth Baptist Association asked me to come and plant a new church in this building. Now, the building is not the church. Amen. The people, the believers who gather together, that's the church. But there is no guarantee that any particular local church is going to last until Jesus comes. You go look at the churches in Revelation, the churches that Jesus spoke to and warned them, if they didn't shape up, he was going to take their lampstand, right? Can you go and find the church of Ephesus today, or the church of Philippi today, or the church... Won't be able to go find those ones that he that the apostles wrote to, or that John was writing about whenever he wrote the book of Revelation. But there is that universal church in which the gates of hell will not prevail against. Right. Also, we see in Ephesians chapter three. We're going to be flipping around a lot, and, and, and I'm flipping around, and I don't have a mark, so hopefully that'll give you time to find them too. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The wisdom of God is being made known through the church. I think that's another passage in which it's talking about the universal church. The, the, that that, that Church that it, that it, that, that uh, it goes beyond 
geographic boundaries. It goes beyond just a, a, an individual group of believers that meets together. It's that universal church that, that uh, is what proclaims the wisdom of God to the world. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, it's in the same book we've been looking at. Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking in this passage about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her thinking he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. When it talks here about how Christ gave himself up for the church, he wasn't talking about Redeemer Baptist Church, although we are included in that. He was talking about the universal church. He was talking about all of the believers of all the ages, both those who have already come to faith and died and passed on, and those who are living presently in this world, and those who are yet to believe in him. He's talking about that universal church in which he gave his life for the church. So I think this is a biblical concept. There is this universal church. Now, a lot of people don't have any problem with this. They say, well, I'm just a member of the universal church. I don't need a particular local church. Besides, church membership really isn't biblical after all, like my friend used to tell me. So let's look at the local church, the, the passages in the Bible that talk about the local church. And there are so many of them, I just had to kind of pick some that are representative, because there's a whole bunch of, of texts that talk about local churches. First of all, let's look back to Matthew and the, Jesus, the words that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says... If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, Jesus, again, those are the two places in the Gospels where Jesus says the word church. Okay? The first one was talking about the universal church. What is this one talking about? If your brother sins against you, and he doesn't listen whenever, he come, whenever you go to confront him, and you bring along a friend, and he still doesn't listen, then he says, tell it to the church. If that's talking about the universal church, then 
who are you supposed to go to to tell? There's nobody to go to. You can't just bring somebody to the universal church and say, hey, my, my brother sinned against me. No. You can't do what Jesus is talking about unless he's talking here about a local, particular local church. Okay? So Jesus here is talking about a specific congregation of believers who hold one another accountable. That's one of the things they do here. If your brother sins against you, it's, it's an accountability there. They're, they're, it almost implies some kind of covenant structure together. They're bound together. And if, if, uh, if a person refuses to listen to the church, then they're to be treated as an unbeliever. Okay? So, the first thing we look at here about, about uh, the local church is the fact that a local church is necessary for practicing what the Bible calls church discipline. Okay? Another passage that's dealing with this concept of church discipline is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verses 1 through 5. I told you I'm going to be all over the place tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here we have a passage where um, the church was putting up with somebody who was in blatant sexual sin. And Paul was saying, you can't put up with that in the church. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and may my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here in this passage, it's again talking about church discipline. The church does not have to put up with sin in her midst. Although sometimes, especially in this day and age, we do. Someone's living in sin. Someone's living with uh, somebody who they're not married to. Someone who, who is committing adultery. And the whole community knows about it. But everyone's afraid to say anything because they don't want to rock the boat. Paul said, put out such a one from among you. Now, here, here he says those words, among you. Among you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's not just talking to just random believers that are out there. He's talking about a local church. Put him out from among you. Now, another concept here that we see that's about church discipline is the fact that Church discipline is done for the sake of the person who's it, who it's being done to. It's to save them. As long as a person who is living in this kind of unrepentant sin continues within the church, they are, are given this kind of false sense of security. If the church doesn't confront them and say, hey, you're living in sin, then they're going to feel like, well, I guess I'm okay. I, I don't need to do anything. 
And what the church should be saying is, hey, you need to turn from this, you need to repent, or the consequences are hell. Turn away from that. And that's loving. And, and, and we can see that it's loving from the next book that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This instance that Paul is talking about was successful church discipline. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he caused it not to me, but in some, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. We would stop there. Um, the, the case of church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was resolved in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, the person, it says, the punishment that was inflicted by the majority was sufficient. The guy repented. He turned away from his sin. And, and he was, the, the, the Corinthian church took it so seriously that they, they weren't yet reaffirming their love. But Paul was like, no, don't do that. He's repented. He's turned away from his sin. Go ahead. Embrace him with open arms. Embrace him with, the church is full of repentant sinners. Repentant sinners. Yeah. This is a place where sinners are welcome. But you can only be a member if you're repentant. If you're turning away from that and striving to follow Jesus. He says the punishment was inflicted by the majority. This is another place where I get the concept of, ch of uh, church membership out of. The majority of what? It's not the majority of the universal church. It's not the majority of just some amorphous body of people. No, there were boundaries. The church knew who were believers and who were not. Who was a part of them and who were not. And so it was a majority of those who recognized one another as members of that body. You can't have a majority unless you have boundaries. So that's another concept that I think teaches the fact that church membership is biblical. Another thing that churches do is they select their leaders. Um, when a church calls a pastor, it's the church that does that, especially in Baptist circles, right? There are other denominations that have different structures, and you might have uh, a, uh, uh, a denomination that sends and assigns a, a person for the church to be at. I think the Bible teaches that a church should be responsible to call their own leaders, okay? And, and we see that in the book of Acts. This is a case of deacons. The book of Acts, chapter 6. In, the, in Acts, chapter 6, you've got this case where there was a... There was a dispute that rose up in the church. There were there was it was a benevolence ministry issue. You know, the, the, the there was a, a list of widows that were getting food off of off of the uh, uh, from the church to take care of their needs. And there was a dispute that rose up be, between uh, two different groups of widows. 
You think that maybe having cliques in church is a new thing? <laughs> Even the early church suffered with that. They had a group of widows that spoke Greek, and they had a group of widows that spoke Hebrew. They couldn't get along. And so what was the solution? In Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 3 here. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should uh, give up the preaching of God's word to serve, the ta serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They called the first deacons in this place. The deacon is the Greek word for a servant and one who's waiting on tables. Okay? That's, that's the, what the Greek word means. It's somebody who, the type of servant who waits on tables. And so, um, here, when, when Peter says, uh, we're not, you know, we can't wait on tables, we've got to preach the word and pray, they call deacons and, and, and they say, choose seven men from among you. That, that's the, the early church, we see a pattern where the, the church selects its own leaders. And then we see qualifications for both pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. We look at 1 Timothy 3. He gives this list of qualifications. He says that uh, it, um, this is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's a pastor... He desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. And he gives this list of character qualities. And then he says deacons likewise. And he gives a list of those same kinds of character qualities for the deacons. And finally, he ends this in verse 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that you to you so that if I delay, you may know how to con how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, which church is he talking about here? The universal church or the local church? He's just been giving the church instructions on what kind of people should be their leaders. It's not the universal church that calls pastors or calls their leaders. It's an individual local church. He's writing these things so that believers would know how to conduct themselves in the local church. How, how they are to pick someone who will be godly and who will lead them. That's what he's doing here. Another thing that we see is the biblical evidence that church members membership is something that is biblical, is the fact that the, the church, churches in the New Testament are so frequently addressed as the church in Jerusalem, or the church in Antioch, or the church in Caesarea. Acts 11.22, it's the church in Jerusalem. Acts 11.26 is the church in Antioch. Acts 18.22 is the church in Caesarea. Paul sent for the church of uh, the leaders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 4:17 says 
he teaches in every church. When he says he teaches in every church, he's not talking about the universal church. He's talking about the local church. And if you have a local assembly, a local gathering together of believers, there are some who are a part of that, believers who've been baptized, who have, who have coveted together one, with one another, and then there are those who are not yet believers. There was a distinction. He wasn't just writing to everybody. He was writing to a church, a specific local congregation. I'm getting long here. Okay. Now, there are also commands from Scripture that require us to have church membership in order to obey. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, 23 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. And I apologize for how long I might be tonight in advance. I hope I'm not boring anybody. I'm not boring anybody? Okay. All right. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, here in this passage, Paul, uh, not Paul, we don't know who wrote uh, Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews, again, I'm going to emphasize, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to have children here with us. They're welcome. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It's not throwing me off too much. All right. Um, okay. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23. Um, okay. So he calls us to love one another, to encourage one another, and, and to stir one another up towards love and good works, um, and not neglect meeting together. Okay? Now, if, if all we need is the universal church, if that's all we need, don't need membership of anything other than the universal church, then how do we obey this command? Not neglecting to meet together. You can't do it. You, you, you can't do it. You can go hop around and church hop all over the place, but the Bible wants us to commit to commit and be a part of a fellowship, to commit to one place and give our lives in that one place and not, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, of ourselves. <coughs> That's the church. We're not to forsake that assembling of ourselves. We can get fed intellectually from listening to a podcast. We can get fed intellectually from just 
listening to preachers on the radio or reading books or things like that. But we can't obey this command without committing ourselves to a local body and, and giving our lives there. We've got to be able to do that. Then, also, he commands us in the scriptures, and this is over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Love one another. Right? Love one another. Jesus taught we are to love one another. This is the new command in John chapter 13 and John chapter 15. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Now that's not new, is it? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is kind of new. Love one another. This is not just our neighbor. Neighbor is everyone. One another is believers. We are to love one another. Um, it's really hard to love the universal church. There's no way we can demonstrate love for the universal church. We can say, oh, I love the church. But if we're not present there with the local congregation, supporting its ministries, committing ourselves to it, then how can we say we really love a local congregation of believers? Church membership is necessary in order for us to obey the command to love one another. That's not just a general command to love our neighbor. It's different. It's loving believers. This, this same command is repeated by Paul in Romans chapter 12 and 13, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, in Galatians 5, 13, in Ephesians 4, 2, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 4, 9, and also in Thess 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, 3. If anybody would like all the passages I'm having, I've already printed off a couple of them back there, and if you, if you run out, I can print out more, Okay. But in all those passages, Paul is saying we have to love one another. Believers, love one another. That's how we demonstrate that we have really been changed by Christ. By loving one another. Not just loving our neighbors, but loving one another. <coughs> Peter. We just went through the book of 1 Peter. Not, just a couple weeks ago we finished it. Peter mentions this command three times. In 1 Peter, we're to love one another. John, in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, mentions this command six times. We're to love one another. In fact, John says that by loving one another is how we really know that we've ever been born again. If you really want to know, do you love one another? If you've been born again, do you love other believers? And not just believers in general, but do you love the people in front of you that are believers? Do you love the people who you gather together with? Or is there constant friction or grudges that you refuse to deal with? Do you love one another, because as, as Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. <coughs> I just want to ask this question to close this section here. How do we fulfill these commands to love one another if we don't actually meet together regularly? Obeying these commands isn't just a matter of feeling, some kind of a, a hyped up 
sentimentalism, it's a matter of demonstrating our love as we continue to meet together. And finally, on, on the commands that we require us to, to have a local body is that we're to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 tells us to bear one, another, one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? That we love one another. So he's saying, bearing one another's burdens is how we show that we love one another. It's not just some kind of sappy emotionalism. It's demonstrated by our deeds. Are we bearing one another's burdens? If there is a poor person in the congregation that's having difficulty paying their bills, okay? Not saying we have a lot of money, but we want to do everything we can to try to meet even the need of the person within our congregation before we go to the outside and meet people's needs on the outside of the congregation. We want, because we love one another. We demonstrate that love by bearing one another's burdens. The last thing I want to talk about is that church covenant we read together. Which I seem to have lost my copy. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Um, what does church membership look like? I would say that when a church has a membership, we are defined by the promises that we make to each other. This church covenant that we read, that is something that when you join Redeemer Baptist Church, is not just a prop on the wall. But these are the promises we make to each other when we join. I haven't told you guys this. You're planning on joining very soon. But... One of the things, I believe it's in our Constitution, is that when a person joins, they sign a copy of this promising to live by it. Okay? We, we want to take this seriously. And, and it's, it's biblical things that are in this. I'm not going to go through and try to look at all the text and everything because we're already ten minutes past what I normally preach. <laughs> but having been led as we believe by the, the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus as Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and of this assembly solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Boils down to this. We make a public commitment before God to join together with a local body of believers. We commit ourselves. Second, we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, to the expense of the church, to the relief of the poor, and to the spread of the gospel through all nations. Okay? This second paragraph is, we make a public commitment before God to carry out the mission of this church. 
And wonder what is involved in the mission of this church. We want to worship God in biblical simplicity, right? We want to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness and comfort. Okay, that's worshiping God in biblical simplicity. We want to, uh, oh yeah, sustain its worship, ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines. That's worship in biblical simplicity. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to serve our community by meeting tangible needs. And here it says, we want to contribute to the relief of the poor. Right? And, and the third thing in our mission of our church is we want to communicate the gospel to those who have not heard. The last line here is, and spread the gospel to all nations. Right? That is a part of the mission of this church, and that's what we promise in the second paragraph. Third, we also engage to maintain family and secret devotions. That can be confusing whenever it says secret devotions. It doesn't mean some kind of a secret mysticism or anything like that. That just means we read our Bibles by ourselves and not just when we're in public. To religiously educate our children. Schools can't do that job. No matter what kind of job school you send them, even if you send them to a Christian school, it's a parent's responsibility to teach them about Jesus. To seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment. To avoid all tattling, backbiting, excessive anger, and to abstain from any drug, food, drink, or practice which brings unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardizes our own or another's faith. To be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. All of these things boil down to we make a public commitment to live lives of holiness. Not saying that we're going to be perfect, but we engage to it. We plan on it. We work towards that. We want to live lives that reflect Jesus. Fourth, we further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the words of or rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. Here this boils down to we make a public commitment to keep one another accountable and to care for one another's well-being. It's not just giving to the poor, but it's praying for one another. It's aiding one another when they're sick and in distress. It's cultivating Christian sympathy. It's being an ear to listen to a brother or sister who's going through a really rough time. That's what we promise when we, read, when we, when we commit to this covenant. And then we hold one another accountable. Slow to take events, but always ready for reconciliation. Jesus taught that if you are coming to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go and first reconcile, and then you come back and worship. Because if we, just, if we worship, but we've still got something against our brother, we're just hardening ourselves in our hypocrisy. First, we take care of the sin that's in the way. Then we come to worship. And mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. And then finally, 
We, moreover, engage that when we remove from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and principles of God's word. That means we make a public commitment that we care about these things so much that if we ever move away, we will keep the same commitment with another body of believers that cares about them in the same way. Because we believe in it. We care about church membership. Not so that we can just build up a big membership rule and say, look at all the members we got. But so that we can do the things that we promise and that I've talked about all night long. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church in Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.